What's going on guys? Welcome to or welcome back to Consuming Crime. It's your host Jules here. Before we get started, I want to touch up on a couple of things as usual. First thing, I don't want to jinx it, but I think my roommate took care of the fire alarm because I have not heard it. So let's cross our fingers. Today's episode will be normal. Second thing, I am holding the mic instead of having the arm because I noticed there was there is a larger echo since I'm in the living room now, so hopefully this fixes that. Not to mention, I developed a habit of clapping my hands, which you may have noticed in the last episode or the episode before that, and holding the mic will keep me from doing that. Make sure you check out the website, consumingcrime.com. Here you can sign up and join the online community that I just started. There's only a couple of us, so join in now while it can still be personal and I can respond to all of you. There's a forum where we can talk about true crime, talk about the latest episodes, and you can also become a supporter of the podcast. A supporter of the podcast basically is a small donation that you can make monthly. You can make as little as 99 cents, and this is just to help sustain future episodes and... Yeah, if you do it, you get a supporter badge on the website as well as a shout out on the next recorded episode at the end. And like I said, you get a supporter badge on the website. So a supporter badge, basically when you sign up for the website, you can get a numerous amount of badges. You can get, once you sign up, you get a automatic crime consumer badge. After that, each badge depends on how much you interact with people and how often you're on the site. Make sure you tell your friends about the podcast, like us on Facebook. We hit 300 so that's awesome and thank you so so much for those of you that have checked out the podcast so far we hit over a thousand unique devices in the past 30 days that's freaking phenomenal without further ado let's jump into today's episode today we are continuing to cover american detective featuring joe kenda on discovery plus this episode is called what she saw on the streaming network but I decided to call it a deadly affair. This case takes place on May 2nd, 2013 in Laurel, Maryland. Laurel is a suburban community between Baltimore and Washington, DC. This is the kind of town where everybody knows everybody, everyone's either friends or they know of each other. Anne Donnelly, she is a private caretaker who goes to the home of one of her patients who has cerebral palsy. Now I had to Google this, I didn't know what it was, so for those of you that don't know what it is, cerebral palsy is a group of disorders that affect a person's ability to move and maintain balance and posture. CP is the most common motor disability in childhood. Cerebral means having to do with the brain, palsy means weakness or problems with using the muscles. This patient's name is Jasmine Gilbert, she is 26 years old. Anne Donnelly shows up to the complex and nobody answers the door. This is unusual. Usually she's greeted by her mother, Tina. She keeps knocking and no one's answering. The door's locked though. So she goes through the back patio door and that door was unlocked. I wonder if they do this on purpose for the nurses. She looks around and she cannot find anybody. She calls out the name Tina. She calls out the name James. James is Tina's boyfriend and nobody's answering her. So she goes upstairs, walks into the bedroom, and that is where she spots two dead bodies in a gruesome and bloody scene. One of these bodies belonged to 45-year-old Tina Towler, who is the mother of the patient Jasmine, and the other body belonged to the mother's boyfriend, 42-year-old James Ferguson. They were both lying on the floor. There was blood splatter everywhere. So immediately, she calls the police, and this was around 8 in the morning. Detectives are dispatched over immediately. As they're looking around the room where the victims were, they see a bed with what appears to be another body underneath the covers. This part freaked me out. The detective walks over to where this body is and pulls over the sheet and it is Jasmine laying there awake. 
untouched, unharmed, which is a good thing. But at the same time, did she witness her mother getting murdered? I'm the level of helplessness that this girl went through i cannot even imagine the documentary is interviewing detective joseph bellino with prince george's county police department he started in 2007 with the department and this was his second homicide case he said the first one they closed within 48 hours and he had told his supervisor like that he wished there was a harder one and his supervisor was like well be careful what you wish for i don't know how i feel about him asking about a harder case like are you asking for somebody to be murdered sir he was driving into work when he received the call about the two bodies in a residence bellatrix baggins do not do that she i hate when cats just like abruptly turn their head to a side because then i mean especially when now i'm sitting here talking about a murder investigation it doesn't help bellatrix please stop like, seriously, I'm going to kick you off this couch. Stop. Seriously. Stop. Okay, get down. You're freaking me out. Jasmine was transported to the hospital to be medically examined, though she had no visible wounds and seemed to be unharmed and untouched. Dana Daniels is being interviewed now, and she was a best friend of Tina's. In the documentary, she starts providing details on her relationship with her. She says they were really close, and their kids would even bake cookies together. The mother's boyfriend, James Ferguson, was also well-known in the area. He was a very likable person, super sweet to everybody that knew him. Now let's get into the crime scene. The officers observed beer cans and cups with beer in them. I noticed one of the cups was full of beer. So I, my initial thoughts were, did somebody like kill them and then just post up and start drinking a beer that was my initial thought because sometimes killers do that like they get comfortable in the home like the green river killer or i'm sorry was it the green river killer or the the golden state killer did that yeah so that's what i was thinking at first but then i thought no this is a relatively small town with one with the main detective saying he only dealt with one previous murder that took 48 hours to solve which means they got the killer so that was just my first thought. There were no signs of a struggle and there was no mess in the common areas. So now it's possible that maybe they knew the person that went in. They can tell that the bedroom door had been kicked in and opened forcefully though. They say that normally when there's a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, or two lovers in general, they have to make sure this isn't a murder-suicide, which you guys might be thinking because you can't see the documentary along with me. But in the, in the dramatization, they didn't show, it just didn't look like a murder-suicide. Not to mention, officers say that the case wasn't a murder-suicide. And the reason they say that is because it's visible to them, it's clear to them, that both of the victims were beaten severely in the face. And, I mean, they don't think that one of them beat the other and then beat themselves in the face, you know what I mean? There were pots and pans around the room and a vase shattered on both sides of the room. Tina was found at the foot of the bed and she had stab wounds on her lower back. Like I said, severe bruising and cuts to the face and the words EVE imprinted on her forehead. So like a stamp kind of. The boyfriend also had severe bruising and cuts to the face. So both of them took a beating they see on the boyfriend's belt like pants area a sheath which is um basically a little pocket area to carry a knife and the knife was gone and the snap was open so where's the knife 
Officers go into the bathroom, and this is where officers find the knife that most likely belonged to James Ferguson. In the sink, the knife is placed perfectly next to a bar of soap. I was hoping that this was dramatized because it, it looked so perfect, but then when I watched the documentary again, it wasn't, it said actual crime scene photo. So. so they're thinking somebody tried washing it off. There were no open drawers, no search through purchase. This is not a robbery. So whoever went to do this did this to kill them. They are considering Jasmine as a witness to this case. I get we need to question her, but I also get the other point of view where it's like, can we leave her alone for a little bit? When she was born, she was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and given three months to live. Clearly, she outlived that expectation, which is awesome. Unfortunately, she has a very severe form. She is incapable of walking, standing, and sitting. She is also non-verbal, so she does not speak. They go to see her and her nurse is with her. They find out that there was an afternoon nurse and a morning nurse. The afternoon nurse was there until about 9.30 at night and the morning nurse came around 8 in the morning, which means this crime occurred between the hours of 9.30 and 8 in the morning. The detective starts asking her, can you understand me? And the nurse says again, she's nonverbal. She laughs and she smiles and that's how she responds. They make a note here that she also loved to hear her mom singing to her. That breaks my heart. And then the, they, they kind of like play this whole drama and like this intense music with like the actress playing Jasmine and the actor playing the detective where like, is she gonna speak? Is she gonna say what she saw? And I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna mess with you guys and play with you on this. She doesn't talk. She doesn't talk. She's not going to. Let's, none of us get our hopes up. I think we just should let her grieve the way she wants to. I don't think we should be pestering her. Now they're a little bit suspicious on Jay Towler. Jay Towler is the ex-husband. They're suspicious of him because he was in the crowd outside of the crime scene. I mean, crazier things have happened, but this is not really a reason to be suspicious of somebody. Joe Kanda in the documentary says, if you're that concerned with your family, why don't you call the police? That's a dumb question. I'm going to get a little political really quick and I might lose followers for this, but as a black man in the year, whenever, whenever this was, your ex-wife was murdered. She's a white woman. You're going to call police and ask what's going on? No, sorry. In Maryland? No. I shouldn't have to explain why that's a bad idea. And I'm I'm just going to clarify. I don't think that they questioned him because he was black. I do think that they questioned him because he's an ex-husband. But I don't know these cops. It could go either way. I'm just saying. It makes sense why he didn't call and ask about his ex-wife being dead. I'm really hesitant keeping that in the episode because I really, really, really don't like touching on politics. But at the same time, this is a true crime podcast and we're gonna hit this subject in one way or another. They bring him in for questioning. He tells them that he left work early to go see the scene. He said he wasn't in the apartment and he would never do something like that. Officers could tell he was emotional and distraught and he actually did come off as really helpful. He wanted to know who killed her. He says he met Tina on the subway and helped her out with Jasmine. Their families just merged together after that. When asked why they broke up, I like, I just want to get through one, one episode where I can completely detach myself. Ever since having this child, I swear I've cried in every documentary I've watched. They had a child named Michael. 
and when he was two years old he was diagnosed with i'm sorry if i mispronounce this hepatobless hepa i'm gonna ask homegirl to pronounce it hepatoblastoma hepatoblastoma okay this is a rare tumor an abnormal tissue growth that originates in cells in the liver it is the most common cancerous liver tumor in early childhood so a year later at three years old he passed away and after this this changed her life and their marriage and i do not blame her i don't even want to know what it's like losing a child like let's not even let's just move on because if i keep thinking about it I'm just gonna end the episode right here and go cuddle with my son. <laughs> so yeah, she was overwhelmed and they just drifted apart after that. However, Jay still cared for her and Jasmine and he would check in on them all the time and they would even hang out. He says that him and James, her boyfriend, got along really well and he would even invite him over for dinner. There was no animosity between them. So what's your alibi? He says he was at work and then he went home that evening around 9 or 10, watched TV and then he went to sleep. Okay, can anybody confirm that? He says, yeah, my roommate Thurston Yerby can confirm that. The officers call him to confirm and they ask him to come to the station, but he had just left town with his girlfriend to North Carolina to visit some of her relatives. So he says he was home that night. He got home and he never left. When I get there, I'll write a statement. But the officer says we need an interview. They got to set that up. Now the autopsy is back. Before we get into the autopsy, I want to really quickly give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, Audible. I don't know about you guys, but I don't really like reading books. I prefer to listen to books. So I go to Audible. You guys can get two free credits on Consuming Crime by going to audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime. Right now I am listening to the Enneagram type. So I've been reading about like the healthy, the unhealthy, the average, and kind of getting to know myself a little bit more through that. And Audible is just something that I actually use regularly. So I do encourage you guys to go ahead and check it out. Expand your mind, read some fiction, read some nonfiction, some self-development. If you do get into the self-development, I strongly recommend starting with The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. I've read it uh, two and a half times now. So yeah, go ahead and check it out. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash consuming crime. Two free credits on the podcast. Now let's get back into the case. They found alcohol in both of their systems. So this tells you that they were drinking beer, which is fine. Go ahead, drink beer, do what you do. But was it just you guys? There was somebody else there. James's cause of death was blunt force injuries and multiple stab wounds, around 15 to be exact. The knife found on the scene is consistent with all of the wounds. So whoever did this somehow got a hold of James's knife and used it on him. Tina's cause of death was actually multiple reasons. Blunt force trauma to the face, stabbing, cutting, and attempted asphyxiation, which is strangling. So this person must know them and hate them. It's definitely thought that Tina was the main target. So what about the Eve imprint, the EVE? The officer starts looking at the imprint, kind of just trying to figure out, did this person, is this like a signature of theirs? And as he's looking at the imprint, it clicks in his brain. The EVE belongs to a flashlight that was broken and found on the scene, the Ever Ready brand. So he hit her in the forehead so hard with this thing that it imprinted her. This person used multiple items. He used the knife, the vase, the flashlight, a frying pan, a pot. What did this person do? Did they go into her kitchen and just like grab things and then just kind of start, what? 
I was trying to think about like just the logistics of the frying pan and the pot and the flashlight and the vase and like the like I wonder if she picked up the vase and then this person picked up the front like where do you get the idea to it's just bizarre it's it's overkill it's over over overkill at this point they have no solid leads except for the eyewitness who is Jasmine again they go into this they go into this where the detective did research on her disease they he tried to figure out other ways to communicate he goes back to talk to her suspenseful music is she gonna talk she doesn't so we're just gonna skip over that officers conclude they no longer have an eyewitness and they no longer consider her to be an eyewitness they need to start over and take a fresh look at it so officers go to re-canvas the area they knock on people's doors in the residence, and one woman did give them some information. She said, yeah, I got home around 11 p.m. from work. I saw a large white SUV outside of their apartment, and I hadn't seen that car before. There was a male sitting behind the wheel with a baseball cap, and he was smoking a cigarette. So is he waiting for them to go to bed? I don't think so. I still, ha- I still at this point, I still kind of have this theory that this person, like, knew them. And, like, maybe they were drinking together. Which, mind you, I have my notes in italics, so I'm trying to go through this with you guys. With Which is, which I mean is, like, I know how it ends, but I'm putting my mindset in my notes with where I was at at that moment, if that makes sense. So officers now check in with the forensics team. They tested the beer cans inside the trash can in the kitchen, along with a white disposable gown, which was the evening nurse's. She threw it out when she left at 9.30, so it was the it was the gown and then beer cans on top of it, so this was obviously thrown in there after she left. Some cans had the victim's prints on it, but there was a third set of prints they needed to match to somebody. They asked Jay Teller for a DNA sample, and he is helpful, like they said earlier, and he is okay with this. He knew his DNA would be there, like not on the beer cans, but just at her house because he was there all the time. But he says he was not worried, and he knows he didn't do anything. The last thing to clear him was to interview his alibi, Thurston Yerby. So, Yerby goes to the station, and now we're talking to him. He says they met when they worked together in home remodeling, and because of the job they had together, they decided to get a place together. He confirms his alibi. He's like, yeah, he got home, and after that, he did not leave. The officer asked for a sample of his DNA for the purpose of elimination, which I thought was really weird. And me, I, like at first, I was like, is this racial profiling? Why are you asking him for his DNA if he's just an alibi witness? I don't want to make it about that because, like I said, I don't know the guy. I just, I've covered how many cases and I've never seen them ask an alibi witness for their DNA or fingerprints. So, it's a little weird. Like he says in the documentary, he's like, I wouldn't normally ask, but I wanted to see his reaction. You guys, his reaction is not what I expected at all. He says no. He says, I should probably talk to my lawyer about that. As an officer of the law, you have to understand because it's our constitutional right to get an attorney without looking suspicious. Like, that shouldn't make somebody look suspicious, but in this case, it does. All right, maybe let's brush that one off. He says, would your DNA be there? He says no. The detective says, all right. And then ask a couple more questions, yada yada. Would you like some water? Yerby says, yeah, sure. So he takes the water 
And it's funny because you guys probably get it already because I'm just slow in that moment. But the documentary makes it really intense, right? It shows the actors like, oh, here, take this water. And he like takes it and they zoom in on his mouth on the, the, the what is it, the cusp or whatever. And I'm like, why are we being so dramatic about a man drinking water? It's because they're going to get his DNA from the water bottle. I didn't even think of that until in the documentary they said, it's a classic move. You offer them a water bottle and then they leave it. It's considered abandoned property so you can test it for DNA. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, I don't know. I was freaking out. But yeah, that's that's really smart. So anyway, he drinks the water and then uh, Yerby starts asking. He's like, oh, can I smoke? So he's like, yeah, sure. Let's go outside. So when they leave, Yerby puts the cap on the bottle and puts the bottle in his pocket. That's a little weird, but it's also common courtesy to not leave your trash behind. So I'm still with Yerby in this instant, okay? So now they're talking outside. Jay was a contractor. He would hire Yerby and James to do some work for him. So Yerby was familiar with the victim, James Ferguson. He tells officers that he had not been in the apartment recently. Once he finishes smoking, he puts it out, which again, the documentary is really dramatic about. So I'm assuming the officer wants to take the cigarette. He puts it out and he sticks it in his pocket. That's also really weird. But are you going to litter in front of a cop? I don't know. Maybe there was a trash can and he could have tossed it. But maybe there wasn't a trash can. What do you want the guy to do? Leave it on the floor at a police station? Like, believe me, I'm suspicious of him as soon as he said he wanted a lawyer. But I'm just saying I would do the same thing. I, I don't leave my trash around at people's houses. Just saying. I'm not defending him. I'm suspicious of him. But... These two instances, I'm like, okay, maybe you can explain it. In the officer's mind, he is now a prime suspect, but there is not enough just yet to put him away. The officer begins looking into Thurston. They start asking around to figure out what his reputation is like and what kind of a person he is. When they are approached by a man, and this man tells them that Thurston, get this, was having an affair with Tina. My first thought was, okay, this is fake. This is a rumor. There's no way. Like, I know Tina, right? They know this because they had all gone to a hotel several months prior and found them in a bedroom together, and Tina was underneath the sheets, and her boyfriend was not aware. Not to this man's knowledge, at least. Now they have somebody who's already a prime suspect who's found out to be having an affair with a woman who has been killed. That doesn't sit right. They still need Yerby's DNA. They do have his fingerprints, though, because he does have a record. And the beer can has fingerprints. So when they go to match them, they match exactly to Thurston. So this proves he was there after the nurses had left, even though he said he was never there. It's not enough to bring him in, though, because this proves he was there. It doesn't prove he killed them to officers. The detective obtains a warrant to get his DNA. After some time, they obtain a warrant to get his DNA. Thurston shows up to the station and he acts a little bit resilient. They also describe him as cocky, which I can believe. And they start taking swaps. They submit it to the lab and it comes, which they didn't say, they didn't say right away what they were testing DNA for. I was like, okay, you're taking his DNA for what? To match it with what? 
and then uh, we're about to get into it right now it comes back and it matches which means his dna was found on the bloody towel in the bathroom which also has the victim's dna on the murder weapon and the beer can so now they have enough they get a warrant and they have him arrested officers wanted to avoid a high-speed chase so they follow him from behind slowly follow him from behind like they can follow him from the front i don't know why i said that <laughs> he pulls into an elementary school where his girlfriend works it's where the dramatization sucks because they say elementary school like i rewound it and they specifically said elementary but when you're watching it it shows middle schoolers i mean i could be wrong if i can find the screenshot i'll put it here but they look like middle schoolers to me i don't know i don't know who directed this but get it together the kids finally leave and school is out thurston is still inside and they're wondering what the hell is going on and then cue the drama cue the music of just you know the tenseness and whatnot he finally comes out and they arrest him officers and i want to get your guys's opinion on this because normally once a suspect is caught they tell you what happened but in this instance he did not Officers suspect that on that night, he wanted or his intentions were to sleep with Tina. So he knocked on the door and James answered the door. He played it off like he was just coming to hang out. Him, James, and Tina were just drinking, drinking beer, casually hanging out. And when James left the room, he tried to make an advance towards her. So she goes upstairs, he follows her, tries again, and then James walks in. That's when James pulls the knife out and Yerby, being bigger than him, takes it from him, kills him, and then turns around to kill Tina so to not leave any witnesses. And that's when everything started and ended. I don't know that I believe this exactly because it doesn't really explain the opening of the door. Like, remember when they said that the door was forcefully opened? So I am curious, what do you guys think? I mean, clearly a fight broke out. I don't know what it was about, um, but... I mean, I think it's human nature to want to fit puzzle pieces together, and this case doesn't quite fit when they explain it like that. He did not kill Jasmine because he knew she would never be able to talk. He is convicted on two counts of second-degree murder, serving two 30-year sentences consecutively. The last bit I thought was really sweet, which is difficult to make of such a horrendous situation, but the ex-husband says that he knew Tina wanted to be with Michael, their son. So that's where she went. I know my voice cracked a little bit there towards the end, but um, I'm not crying. That's it for today, guys. Make sure you give us a like, subscribe to the YouTube channel, like us on Facebook. If you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, that means that you would make a monthly donation of as little as 99 cents a month to help sustain future episodes. Anything helps, you guys. And um, you will get a supporter badge on Consuming Crime Dot com and badges are basically where you sign up for the website join the forum join the online community and you can get badges based on how much you interact and how long you interact with others and like i said you get a supporter badge and a shout out on the next episode recorded after you become a supporter make sure you tell your friends about the podcast thank you again so so much for listening it means the world that so many of you care to hear me every week i think that's amazing. That's pretty much it guys. Thank you for consuming crime with me today and you'll hear me next week.